in Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, he said many difficult things. At one point, he said, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You see, the religious leaders at the time of Christ had taken the Old Testament command to love your neighbor, and over the years, they had deduced that what that meant was that God wanted us to form our group and love only our group so extremely that we hate anyone outside of our group. So Jesus said, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But then Jesus said, but I say to you, only Jesus can pull off talking like that. He said, but I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. For then you will be like your father who is in heaven. For he gives his reign to both the just and the unjust. Now it would be hard enough if Jesus simply said, but I say to you, love your enemies, or or, or, excuse me, love your neighbor and tolerate your enemies. Just sort of make do, get by with them being in existence. Try not to lash out against them. But he says, no, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, why? Why did Jesus say that? Why would he give that command? Well, he said, the reason is so that you can be like your Father who is in heaven. You see, God is indiscriminate in his love. He gives rain, he says, to the just and the unjust. This is not a negative thing, this is a positive thing. When the rain comes down upon the earth, you know, we just had a rain shower a few minutes ago, the whole region got rained upon. And every part of it, whether you know, you're know you a just farmer or an unjust farmer, a believing farmer, a non-believing farmer, everybody benefits from that rain. That's the idea. God is indiscriminate in his love. And so we must want to be like our Father in heaven. Then Jesus went on to say this. In verse 46 of Matthew 5, he said, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? In other words, Jesus said, even the non-believing, carnal, sinful world, people like tax collectors in, in that era, and if you work for the IRS, Jesus isn't trying to call you out right now, but in Israel, under the thumb of Roman oppression, the tax collectors were oppressing the people of Israel. But even tax collectors, even the Gentiles, even the non-believing world, Jesus said, they know how to act halfway decently towards other people who are in their camp, in their group, in their tribe. You see, it's no big deal for us to come to church and love each other. That's just what we should do. But what Jesus is announcing is there's a level of love that goes beyond that, where we are able to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. And when we behave that way, we are behaving like our Father who is in heaven. 
The reason I point out that little passage to you this morning is, is because David in our story is going to behave like God in heaven. Uh, Saul has become David's enemy. David is not Saul's enemy, uh, but Saul believes that David is his enemy. Uh, Saul has pursued David into the wilderness. David has had to flee for his life. And his hatred for David is now going to come to a crescendo over the course of these next three chapters. And so Saul, Saul, as he pursues David, has put David in a difficult spot. And David is going to behave in a powerful way. He is going to show Saul incredible kindness and incredible love. And so I've titled this message today, Love Your Enemies. Now when I use that title, I think it's important to make the comment that if you were to say that title to David, he would say, well, now hold on a second. Saul is not my enemy. Saul is my father-in-law. Saul is my king. Uh, Saul is the anointed one of the Lord over the nation of Israel. And then you would hold out to him, but he's tried to kill you 13 times. But he would fire back and say, but I don't feel that this man is my enemy. That might be lesson number one for loving your enemies is not feeling, believing, thinking of them in that kind of way. But this is just, maybe I could say it like this. I'm using the title, love your enemies, because that's what Jesus said. But maybe we could say it like this, love those who are difficult for you to deal with, all right? And as we think about it like that, maybe you don't have to think of some grand enemy out there who's out to get you, but maybe you just think about the people in your life that are hard for you to deal with. And as we move through this text, understand this, there are going to be people, maybe in your life, who as they think about you, you're the Saul to them. You're the enemy for them. You're the one that's difficult to deal with. And so hopefully as we look at David, we'll see some great tools as he emulates his father uh, who is in heaven. All right, so let's read the first movement of this story in verse uh, 1 through 5. It says, When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now last week we saw that Saul had been pursuing David. And he had almost captured David. And at the last moment he received word that the Philistines were attacking Israel. And so Saul departed to go take care of the Philistines. Now that mission is complete. That mission is over. And so he picks up his uh, you know, mission to try to find David. He receives intelligence that David is hiding down in the wilderness of En Gedi. Now, uh, even today, if you go down to the Dead Sea where the En Gedi is, you feel, even today, as you leave Jerusalem and drive down in elevation to En Gedi in this region, you feel like you're heading into desolation even today. 
2,000 years ago, it felt that way even more so. Just a place that it felt like no human being had a right to live in. And David was down there. It was a perfect place for hiding. There are all these rocks and caves and nooks and crannies. And so David was down there hiding in a particular cave. Now, some of the caves uh, there in En Gedi, there would be shepherds that would cruise out through the wilderness And as they were taking their goats or their sheep throughout the wilderness, sometimes during the heat of the day, they'd want a break. And they'd take these caves and they would carve them out to be even longer. That's why they're called sheepfolds in the text. And so David and his men, all 600 of them, were in this massive sheepfold. In the middle of the day, they're hiding from Saul and his men. And Saul, as they're cruising through En Gedi, he picks one of hundreds, if not thousands of caves in all of En Gedi, he picks the one cave that David and his men are hiding in to go in, and the text says to relieve himself. To me, it's like a too much information kind of, kind of zone. Literally, in the Hebrew, it means he went to uncover his feet. Uh, so some people think that that means that he was going to the bathroom. Other people think that he went in to go t- to sleep. If you really want to know the intricacies of why I think it means that he was going to the bathroom, you can catch me out on the patio after the service. I've got some reasons for believing that that's the translation or the idea that's correct. But whatever reason, he went into this cave. And you can imagine, you know, there's David and his men. Their eyes are, you know, already adjusted. They're there in the dark. They're tuned in. Saul comes in from the brightness of the sun with 3,000 men and all their horses and chariots and all of that outside of the cave. A lot of noise. And so with all that noise and that, uh, you know, his eyes being adjusted to the daytime light outside, he gets in the cave and he has no idea that there are 600 men that are watching him. So he's there doing whatever he's doing, covering his feet. And... David's men begin to speak to David. They say to him, this is the day that the Lord said to you. And David hears their voice. And David arises. And I love the way it says it there. It says that he stealthily came upon Saul. And with the knife in his hand, he reached out and instead of slicing Saul's throat, or putting a dagger in his chest or in his back, he cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Now you have to imagine the feeling of these 600 men. Their lives were made miserable because of Saul. In their minds, they are thinking to themselves, David is the future king, we've already cast our lot with him. When Saul is destroyed, when Saul is eliminated, our lives improve. And David goes out with that dagger in his hand, and to them, all of their hopes are on this moment. God has done this. God has provided a way. God has rescued us. God has done this. In fact, when they speak to David, notice that they say to him, this is the day which God, which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. There they are. They say to David, remember when God said to you, I'm going to give Saul into your hand, and you're going to do to him whatever you want to do to him? Remember that day? Remember that day? Remember that day? But here's the thing. 
When you go back in David's life, there was never, ever a moment that God had said that. God had said that David would be the next king in Israel. He had said that he would eliminate Saul's household, but he had not said that David would be the one who was actually allowed to do it. He had never told David that he would put Saul in his hand, that David would be able to take Saul's life. And so David does this thing that is so unexpected by his men, and he simply cuts off the corner of Saul's robe. I'm going to show you, like I said, six things about loving your enemies. And the first one is right here. Number one, you must resist the natural response. You must resist the natural response. You see, when David was doing this thing, everybody there that was watching was rooting for him to take Saul's life. Everyone there that was observing would have justified David plunging his knife into Saul's chest or into his back and taking his life. And these natural people, the 600 men, with natural vision, not spiritual vision, not faith vision, but natural vision, they looked at the situation and they said, this must be what God is doing and what God has provided for you to be able to do. But David stepped out and did an unnatural thing. You see, it is not natural to, after being struck on one cheek, to offer the other. It is unnatural to, after being sued for your tunic, to give your cloak also. It is unnatural after being compelled or forced to go one mile, to go a second mile. And it is unnatural when you are targeted by a beggar or a lender to give or to lend. All of those come from Jesus' commands to us in Matthew chapter 5. These are unnatural responses. And part of the Christian life is to come to a place where the natural response, we move past it. Where it's the skin that we shed and we begin to behave in a more spiritual, spirit-led, spirit-fueled way in life. You see, when you become a Christian, before you knew Christ, all you were was natural man. All you were was natural woman. But when you come to Christ, He gives you a new nature. And now that new nature is waging war against your old nature, the flesh. And as the flesh and as the Spirit battle against one another, one of the goals of the Christian life is to, to borrow a New Testament phrase for it, put off the old self and its desires and to put on the new self which is made in the image of Jesus Christ. And David here was doing just that. He was living in a way that was not like the old man, not like the carnal man, not like the natural man, but living in a spiritual dimension. You see, when someone gossips about you, the natural response is to return their gossip with more gossip. When someone gives you the cold shoulder, your response naturally is to return the favor. When someone hates you, you want to return it with more hate. Or how about this, for those of you who have deposited children down into the children's ministry today, when your child acts childish, because by the way, that's what children do, the temptation is to act childish in response. Oh, you throw a fit right now? I'll show you an adult fit. (laughs) You know, that's the temptation. 
But the reality is the Lord is looking at us and saying, I want to help you behave not naturally, but supernaturally. I want to bring you into a spiritual dimension. We might say of someone, well, they won't call me, so I won't call them. They won't initiate with me, so I won't initiate with them. But the Lord looks at us and says, I'm asking you to do that which is unnatural. You see, the thing about the natural response is that it feels good in the moment, but it's very short-sighted. Think about this moment. What would have happened if David had gone out and killed a man who could not defend himself? Saul was not armed in this moment. He was unsuspecting. David would have been the murderer of the king of Israel. And on top of that, eventually, one of Saul's soldiers would have been like, why isn't Saul coming out of that cave? And pretty soon, David would have been surrounded by 3,000 soldiers and his men would have had no way to escape. It felt good, perhaps, for these men to say, slay Saul. But the reality is, it's so often a short-sighted reality. You see, the things that result from our natural response to enemies or conflict, the results are division and death and the entrenchment of human positions. I mean, we're living in a very unique cultural moment. I think we'd all agree about that. And in this moment, what you're seeing, what we're observing are camps that are being formed, groups that are being formed. And when we return in an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth kind of response, the things that come against us, all that we do is solidify the entrenchment, solidify the groupings. You know, when we respond to hatred with hatred, uh, when we respond to intolerance with a lack of listening and dialogue and and nuance and scripture and love, when, when we do not respond in those ways, all we're doing is creating more of that entrenchment. But Jesus said there's this powerful third way. You don't have to simply agree You don't have to be a mindless person. You also don't have to vehemently disagree and be a person who's combative. There's this third way of loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. And that can be the beautiful opportunity of the body of Christ in the era that we are living in right now. We can be people who are just so filled with this love, with this this beauty with the gospel that the world around us uh, might not know what to say with that kind of response. The, the reality is that in the Old Testament era, they may have said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but the, the, the truth of the matter is that we so often do the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth thing very poorly. Because when someone takes my eye, so to speak, or my tooth, so to speak, It takes so much self-control to say, all I want in return is your eye. All I want in return is your tooth. No, instead, we say, you took my eye, I want to kill you. You took my tooth, I want to rage against you. But Jesus offers us a brand new way. He says, no, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. So number one, we need to be people who resist the natural response. 
All right, now let's see what happens next in the story. Remember, David and his, David's men are sitting there. David returns to them, and all he's got is this corner of Saul's robe. Like, what a disappointing moment for David's guys. You know, they're just so excited, like, this is it. David's going to win. He's going to be a king. You know, they're just so pumped up about this. And David creeps out, and they're like, oh, yeah, Saul, he hasn't noticed. He's so dumb, you know. And, 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 and David reaches out. He's got the knife. You know, you can just imagine it, like, glistening. And the guy guys are like, yes, this is it. This is the moment. And David reaches down and cuts off the corner of his robe. I, I mean, I like imagine it as like a sawing, you know, kind of thing or something. And they're like, what is he doing right now? And he's got this, and he's like, then he leaves and he comes back, you know, and, and, and these guys are just watching David come back. And notice what happens in verse five. It says, and afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. David comes back to his men. And he's got this corner of Saul's robe in his hand. Notice what it says. It says that his heart struck him. He felt guilty about what he'd done. He felt that even that, cutting off the corner of the robe, that he had crossed a line. He hadn't taken Saul's life, but perhaps he's shaken by the reality that he felt it was possible that he could take Saul's life. Like, if I'm willing to do this, I might have been willing to do that. And his heart is convicted. And he speaks to his men. He says, look... I should not do this to my Lord, my King, the Lord's anointed. And with his words, he restrained 600 men from launching out of their position in that cave and taking Saul's life himself. He interceded. He's there interceding for Saul. And what I want you to see here is the sensitivity of David. This is beautiful sensitivity. This is sensitivity that you know the story in David's life. If, you, if you've followed his life at all, if you've read the Old Testament at all, you know that there will come a time in David's life where he loses this sensitivity. But here in this moment, he is very sensitive to sin. And he feels it at this moment. And I wanted to point this out to you because I think this is a huge part of loving your enemies. You have to, number two, be sensitive to your own sin. You have to be sensitive to your own sin. Let me ask you a question. Whose sin was greater? Saul's or David's? Saul's or David's? Now, it's not a trick question. I realize that some of you here, you're thinking to yourself, well, all sin is sin, and all sin separates us from the glory of God, and God is holy, and even the smallest little sin is in the sin category, and it separates us from uh, fellowship with the living God. But if we could say it not from God's vantage point, but from our vantage point. Aren't there some sins that create great disasters here on earth and other sins that it seems that the consequences are so much smaller because they're so much smaller in scope? And wouldn't you in this moment say, Saul's sin is the greater sin. It's driven 600 men out into the wilderness. They have no peace. They've had to leave their homes, their wives, their families. They're on, a, on the run for their life. It's Saul's sin that has ruined David's life. And all David has ruined is Saul's robe. 
He could like get a new one. It seems that Saul's sin is the greater sin. But David would not sit there and say, your sin is bigger than my sin. No, he said, I have sinned. I have sinned. And it grieved his heart. You see, as long as you sit around in a conflict with someone else, thinking about, dwelling upon, ruminating over their sin, without looking within your own heart, realizing that you, like them, are made of dust. You, like them, have a flesh. You, like them, are capable of the very same things that they did against you. As long as you refuse to do that and point the finger elsewhere, you'll have a difficult time loving your enemy and seeing God give you progress in this Christian life. No, we have to come to a place where we recognize the sin that is within us. We must be sensitive to our own sin, especially inside of the conflict. I can't tell you how many times Christina and I have been in some kind of discussion where you know somebody did something you know or whatever and you know you always go into those things feeling like i am you know i know it's probably wrong to say 100% right so i'll just say 99.999% right and you go into that and as long as two people hold that position and refuse to have any humility whatsoever to say there is sin within me, then it, it, it makes it so difficult to make progress. I've seen this in larger scales so many times in my pastoral life. Maybe a married couple, one spouse is maybe unfaithful to their wife or to their husband. And the person who's been sinned against, they are grieved. And as they think about what has been done against them, as they set their mind upon it, it's very hard to move past. It's very hard to process. It's a painful thing. But I've seen it happen many times where the spouse who has been wronged begins to then justify sin. They return sin against them for sin against the person who has sinned against them. It sometimes begins with a hatred, an animosity, justifying anger and and malice and wrath. And look, when that kind of thing happens in a marriage, it is messy and it is difficult. And there will be times a person sinned against does not behave exactly like Jesus. But the reality is once it takes root in the heart and it begins to be dismissed a snowball begins to take place where eventually the person who has been hurt might even find themselves doing the very thing that has been done to them. It is so important for us to have a sensitivity to our own sin, to what's going on inside of us. Even when the enemies are working against us, we must remember and stay tender to our own sin. Now, In verse 8, we have our next movement of the story. And I'm going to read to you all the way through verse 15 and draw out a couple of things from this. So afterward, verse 8, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, 
Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes, verse 10, have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some, they told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said I would not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord, verse 12, judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, verse 13, out of the wicked comes wickedness but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. All right, this whole speech from David to me is so incredible. I mean, this speech to me is the kind of speech that only a poet, a songwriter like David could extemporaneously come up with. I mean, he comes out of this cave and he's quoting ancient proverbs and giving his own little talk about like, I'm like a dead dog and I'm like a flea that you're chasing in the wilderness. I mean, it's just beautiful. It almost sounds like something that David has rehearsed before. My guess, I don't know this, but my guess is that David had rehearsed this before. You say, Nate, come on, how do you know that? Well, I've had enemies before, and I can tell you that I have had conversations with my enemies before I had conversations with my enemies. You know what I'm saying? You've probably all done this. You've been walking around, you're praying maybe a little bit, crying out to God, and all of a sudden, your prayer like shifts from praying to God about some enemy, and you're like, I mean, I can't believe you did that. That's not the way I think. That's not what I'm about. How could you? You're like, whoa, I just shifted from praying to God to talking to my enemy who cannot hear me. (laughs) And it seems like David out there in the wilderness had processed this a little bit. He thought about the ancient proverb. It's not in the Bible. It's just a proverb that was going around at that time. It's a proverb I could write. Wickedness comes out of wicked people. (laughs) It's a very basic proverb. You know, the idea that David is saying is, I'm not doing wickedness, so you should be able to know my heart. I'm not a wicked person. I, I haven't stretched out my hand to kill you. But in all of this, I want you to notice David's tone. David's tone. It's very humble. It's very humble. He calls Saul my Lord, the King. He bows with his face to the earth. He blames Saul's logic, Saul's desire to kill David on the words of other men. You have counselors telling you to kill me, David. He's giving Saul the benefit of the doubt. He calls him my Lord. He calls him, verse 10, the Lord's anointed. And in verse 11, he calls him my father. Like as if he's trying to remind Saul, you know, hey, remember, like you're my father-in-law. You know, we, we, we do the feast together. We hang out together. Remember all of that. He's very humble in the way that he approaches Saul. But as you consider that, consider this. This move from David was very risky. 
I'm sure his men were thinking to themselves, what in the world are you doing? I mean, I'm no, I've never been in the military. I haven't studied military strategy all that much. So don't take me as like some great military strategist. But it seems to me that when you have 3,000 people standing outside of the cave that you're in that want to kill you, and you're inside of the cave and there is no other exit from that cave, it seems to me like it's a bad military position to be in to then come out of the cave and be like, hey! (laughs) This is a risky move. David was willing to risk greatly to try to be reconciled to Saul. And so number three, we must humbly pursue reconciliation. With the right tone, Proverbs 15 verse 1 says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You know, not, not, with, not with anger in our voice, but with a humble spirit, we are to step out and try to be reconciled. Jesus said inside of the body of Christ, inside of the church, Matthew 18 verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And then after that, he says, you know, if he won't receive you, then go with two or three. And after that, if he won't receive you, then bring some church leadership. But try. Try to be reconciled to those who are against you. But as you do, don't come up into that moment of reconciliation with pride or with arrogance or with accusation, but come with humility. Humility of spirit and humility of heart. And I believe in looking at this text today that there are plenty of you who have tried this. Because there does come a point in a person's life where you are at odds with someone and you have made attempt after attempt after attempt to try to be reconciled to them. And it is where it is. And they know that you love them. But here's what needs to happen for things to be right. But there also might be some people here today who as you're listening to this and reading this text, you're saying to yourself, man, I need to get out of my cave. I need to step out. I need to take the risk. I need to be in a place of vulnerability in order to try to be unified or reconciled with the person that I am at odds with, just as David did with Saul. Now, in the middle of all of this speech, to the friends or the men of David and then here in the middle of this speech David had a title for Saul that I want to fixate for my on for my fourth point he called Saul first in verse six inside the cave and then quoting what he said to his guys in the cave to Saul he says you're the Lord's anointed the Lord's anointed this was David's way of saying Saul is in his rightful place he is supposed to be upon the throne He is the king of Israel. Now, I'll remind you that when Samuel the prophet came out to anoint Saul as the future king in Israel, 20 plus years before this moment, uh, he busted out a vial, a little vial, uncorked it and had some oil in it, and he put the oil on Saul. It was like a a little dab will do you kind of situation. But when Samuel came to David, to anoint David to be the future king of Israel, he did not bring a vial of oil, but he brought a horn of oil, an an animal's horn that had been hollowed out and then corked with oil inside of it. But David didn't, didn't care about that. He didn't sit there and say, you know, he's like 
little anointed guy, and I'm big anointed guy. You know, he's not saying of Saul, you know, I, I've got the real anointing. He's got the minor anointing. No, he just says, this man is anointed of the Lord. God chose him. God selected him. God put him in that position sovereignly for a reason. And I think, in a sense, what David is saying is, he's not only anointed to be the king over all of Israel, but he's anointed to be my king. He's not only anointed to be in this position, but he's anointed to be in this position in my life today. And if you can say, in the middle of dealing with someone that you're at odds with, or someone who's an enemy in your life, if you can say, they are the anointed of the Lord, a, a breakthrough can happen within your heart. The fourth thing I wanted to say to you is that you must recognize that God is shaping you with this person. You see, sometimes the most difficult people in life are the ones that shape you and mold you the best. David was being groomed to be the next leader in Israel. And it might be that a professor that you have in school that's, that's harsh, antagonistic to your Christianity, it might be that they are the anointed of the Lord. They might be the ones that cause you to ask questions about your faith that you would not have asked in the comfort and the friendliness of your life group on a Wednesday night. But as you research and as you think, your Christianity becomes sharper, firmer. The reason for the hope that is in you, as Peter said, begins to be built up as those challenges come your way. It might be a boyfriend that's in your life who pressures you to do things that would compromise your integrity. It might be that in that moment, that person that becomes really an enemy against you might be the very one that God uses to shape you to say, no, I'm a person of resolve. I'm going to follow after the Lord. I'm going to stand with Him. That moment of decision comes in that time and in that moment. It could be that you have an employer who is unrealistic, laying demands and burdens upon you that are heavy and thick, but perhaps the Lord has leadership for you in the future. And God is shaping you and molding you into a good future leader as you sit under the poor leadership of the person that you are following today. You see, in, a many, in many different ways, we might be able to say, God is shaping me through this difficult person. Have you ever seen like a, an old, about-to-retire Labrador retriever that is just like, let's kids crawl all over him. Have you ever seen a dog like that? You know, just some big old dog that, you know, he's just chilling and he's got kids climbing on him, trying to ride him and stuff like that. And he's just like, it's all good. <laughs> Inevitably, what the owner will say is something like, ah, he's been around children his whole life. He's used to it. You see, what happened in that dog's life is that at the very beginning of his life, these kids were pulling his tail and trying to ride him trying to grab his tongue, grabbing his face, petting him in the wrong direction, you know, stuff like that. And after a while, he's just like, well, it is what it is. <laughs> to where later in life, you look at him and you say, man, you were shaped by the Lord's anointed. <laughs> you know, there's something about you that is made different because over time you were trained. You see, so often God will allow this into our lives. He will shape us. He will mold us 
through the difficulty. So we must say that. We must recognize that God is shaping us. Now, I want you also to see in verse 12 and in verse 15 that, the, that David entrusted himself into the hands of God. I mean, in the middle of this speech to Saul, he says in verse 12, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. And then in verse 15, may the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Throughout that, those phrases, David confessed that God would be the one who had to avenge him, plead his cause, and deliver him. But the problem for us so often is that we think that if we do not avenge ourselves, then no one will. And we think if we do not plead our cause, then no one will. And we think if we do not deliver ourselves, then no one will. But David was not putting his hope in Saul, and he was not putting his hope in himself. He was putting his hope in the Lord. And so we must, number five, let God be the judge. Let God be the judge. There just come times in our lives where we have to say, I don't know what to do here, but I'm trusting that God will be the one that sorts all of this out. Paul, the apostle, there was a time in his life where he had a conflict with the church. You know, it's clear from looking backwards, you know, with 2020 vision, that Paul was right and the Corinthian church was wrong. But in the moment, the Corinthians felt like they were right. And in the moment, Paul felt like he was right. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he explained, look, you guys are judging me, but I, and, I, and I've searched my heart, but I will not even judge myself. It is the Lord who will judge me. Now, I've heard Christians say that with the wrong tone so many times. God is my judge, you know, kind of thing. It is the, you can't judge me, the Lord will judge me. You know, kind of, that's not what Paul meant. What Paul meant was, I've searched my heart, I've tried to hear, I've tried to listen, I've heard what you've said, and as I've searched my heart, I do not see that anywhere, but you know what? I could even self-deceive. So if I can't even, I'm past the point of even being able to judge myself, the Lord will have to be the one that judges my life. David entrusted himself into the hands of the living God. All right, let's close and see how Saul responded to this speech from David. It says in verse 16, as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I. For you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul, verse 22. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. 
All right, so Saul responds to this whole thing from David. He's like, is that your voice, my son, David? You know, he, he recognized David's voice. David had sung to him a thousand times. He recognized David's voice. He was his son-in-law after all. And, and he, he's got this like kind of apology, apology. You ever given one of those? You ever received one of those? You know, he's, he's kind of like, you know, you're more righteous than I am. You know, it's like, well, like actually like you're not righteous at all, Saul. And David is. But he's like, you're more godly than I, even more godly than me. Like, it's a miracle, but you are, you know. And he's just got this whole thing. And, and, he, and he, he, he says to David, like, a very Jonathan-like thing, like, swear to me that you're not going to harm my family. You know, make that covenant with me. And David makes that covenant with Saul. But he even prophesies over David in verse 20 and says, a kingdom is going to be established in your hand. And and during David's reign, Israel became like Israel. He really established them as a kingdom. But this repentance from Saul was worldly, fleshly, and temporary. In just a couple of chapters, we're going to see Saul renege on all of this and again try to take David's life. It was temporary worldly sorrow perhaps you've seen this before perhaps you've done this before the kind of sorrow that is just for a moment that has no lasting power attached to it it's not real repentance it's temporary repentance and so Saul left and went home notice what it says in the last verse it doesn't say and Saul went home and David went with him it says and Saul went home And David and his men went to the stronghold. That probably means that they went back to the cave of Adullam or they went deeper into En Gedi to protect themselves. You see, David heard the confession of Saul. He heard the repentance of Saul. But he said, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. He walked away and said, no, I'm not going to entrust myself into your hands. And so the final thing that I wanted to say to you is that when dealing with and loving and loving our enemies, we must be wise about what is inside of humanity, what is inside of human hearts. You see, even Jesus had a moment in his life where the people in Israel were growing fond of his earthly ministry. It was early in the ministry of Christ, way back in John chapter 2. And there was this moment where he came to Jerusalem during the feast, and people loved him, they flocked to him. But it says at the end of John chapter 2 that Jesus would not entrust himself to man because he knew what was in man. In other words, he knew the betrayal. He knew the divisiveness. He knew that they would eventually want to crucify him. And so he did not yet at that moment entrust himself to them. You see, Jesus said to his disciples, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We have to have this wisdom. We cannot be under the thumb of abuse, for instance, and say to ourselves, I will remain there so that I can love my enemies. No, we must be discerning. There is a different way of loving our enemy than simply allowing that abuse to come into our lives. We must be safe. We must be discerning. I've seen this happen oftentimes with 
women in the body of Christ who desire to be married, or men as well, who desire to be married and find someone who has checked the box on their online profile that says Christian. And then they sit down together, go out for the first time. So where do you go to church? You check the box, Christian. Where do you go to church? I go to Calvary. It's awesome. The pastor's got this cool beard. He's looking like Jesus. You know, it's great. You know, and they look at you and they look at you like, oh, well, you know, I just moved here seven years ago. I'm still looking for a church. And you start getting clues that this person that has checked the box is actually not walking in the light if they even know the gospel at all. But the heart says, oh, I want to be loving. I want to give grace. I I hope it could work out. No, we must be discerning. We must be wise about what is in man. All right, now in all of this, David did not extend his hand to do a bad thing. He refrained from doing a bad thing. Jesus is better than David. He not only refrained from doing a bad thing, he extended himself to do a good thing. He laid down his life so that you and I could be reconciled to the living God. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. And I'm just going to pray for us because, man, this spirit of Jesus We've got to have that same spirit inside of us. This Jesus who, when he was on the cross and they ridiculed him and said, if you are who you say you are, then come down from that cross and save yourself. That same Jesus, the way that he treated his enemies, we want to have that more firmly planted inside of our hearts. So let me pray for you today. Lord, I thank you for what you have done for us the way, Lord, you have been faithful to us, the way that you have cared for us. And Lord, I pray and I ask that you would strengthen us to be a people who are able to more and more effectively as the years go by, love those that we are at odds with. Lord, whether it just be a position that we do not hold or whether it's, Lord, someone who we are actually in interaction with, we ask, Lord, and pray that there would be love that comes more and more out of our lives and out of our hearts, that we would be like our Father who is in heaven. And maybe you're here this morning, and Jesus Christ has not yet become your Lord. He has not yet become your Savior. I want to tell you that you can invite Him into your heart this morning. He died on the cross for your sin. Pray something like this. Say, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Come into my life and make me new. Thank you, God, for sending your son to die upon the cross for me and raising him from the grave. And I pray that you would now come to live inside of me and to help me to now live for you. And so, Lord, we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. Amen. All right, church, let's stand together and let's.